The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now we want to open up God's Word and look there, so I'd like to ask you this morning if you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And I actually have two scriptures that I'd like to go to today. So if you'd find Acts chapter 17 and put your finger in that scripture. And then I want you to also find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read a few verses from this chapter to begin with. And this is the most powerful and most complete defense of the resurrection of Christ that we find in all of scripture. This is really, just the entire chapter is a tremendously weighty volume on the resurrection of the dead. And we're just going to read a small part of it today as we get into the message for this morning. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 12, and I'll let you remain seated for for the reading this morning. Verse number 12, the apostle Paul is writing and he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. I just ask, Lord, that we'd have good attention to what's said, and we pray that the words of scripture and the words of this message today will help someone here in the realization of their condition before a holy God. Thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our congregational reading a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 28, we saw there the historical record of Jesus' resurrection And that is really just a vitally important part of Scripture, that we get the full story of what happened when Jesus arose from the grave. What we read there has implications for every person in the world. The resurrection of Christ is a fact that has never been disproven. There are many critics that deny or have denied that Christ did not arise from the grave, but most of them even today that have done investigation and looked into it realized that that tomb where Christ was put was empty when the disciples went there to see the body of Jesus. Now, if that wasn't true, then the Jewish leaders would have immediately refuted the claims of the disciples, and they would have gone to the tomb, and they would have asked the soldiers to roll back the stone, and they would have produced the body of Jesus, and then we would have proof that he did not really arise from the dead. But in Matthew chapter 28, verse 13, we read just a few moments ago, we we saw how that the religious leaders crafted a lie that the disciples came and stole his body, and then they paid the soldiers a large sum of money to affirm that story. 
But we know that Christ arose from the grave because it radically changed the lives of the men who preached that. After Christ arose, the disciples preached the resurrection and they did it often under the threat of death. We know that it's true because Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days to the disciples after he was crucified. We know that it's true because on the day that he ascended, the word of God says that there were over 500 witnesses at once who saw him at one time, who saw him go back up into the clouds into heaven. And we know that it's true because after Jesus went back to heaven, he appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And through that experience, Saul became the apostle Paul. When he was Saul, he was a vigorous persecutor of Christians. And then he was transformed by that appearance of Christ into the Apostle Paul. And he became the greatest preacher and the greatest theologian in the 2,000-year history of the church. It made a change in the Apostle Paul. And that miraculous appearance caused Paul to preach the gospel to a group of people, to Gentile people whom he hated before. And the resurrection of Christ changed him so that he was able to write that great chapter that we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There is no doubt about the resurrection, and because it's true, it produces certain guarantees for every person here today. And we can see some of those guarantees in those few verses we just read. If you still have 1 Corinthians 15 open, you'll notice that in the 14th verse that Paul says that because of the resurrection, we know that preaching is valid. It proves that we are not false witnesses of Christ. And this is what all gospel preaching is based upon. This is why we're here today. It's all based upon the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ is not raised, then there is no need for us to be here today. In the 14th verse, the resurrection also proves that our faith is not vain. If Christ is not raised from the grave, then there's no advantage to belief in him. I mean, why would you possibly want to believe in him? Jesus said that faith in him would cause you to be ridiculed by your neighbors. He said that it will cause divisions in your family. He even said that it might cause you to lose your life. And so if Christ is not raised, faith becomes an albatross around your neck that leads you throughout your life into trouble, constant trouble and worry and fear. But those of you who know Jesus Christ as Savior, and you believe in the resurrection, you know that your faith actually gives you confidence, that faith gives you contentment, that faith gives you courage, that faith is the evidence of everything that God promised that you can't see is actually real. And then best of all, I think because of the resurrection, Paul shows us that our hope is vindicated. In verse 19, he says that if Christ is not raised, then our only hope is the life that we now live. And that would have been just a horrible prospect for Paul and the other apostles and those that he preached to because the persecution of the world came upon them because they preached the resurrection and they preached it for a gospel that was a fake if Christ was not raised. And if it isn't true, then we would have to say like the most popular preacher today that we live our best life now. But if your best life was like the Apostle Paul, that it meant suffering, and it meant beating, if it meant ridicule, if it meant, meant being thrown to the lions, what kind of life would that be? 
Better it would be for you to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. And he made that very point in verse number 32 of the chapter. But because the resurrection is true, we know that we shall also be raised, that when we die and when Christ comes back, our bodies will also be raised. We know that heaven awaits us, and we know that we will live in the paradise of God forever. So our preaching is valid, our faith is not vain, our hope of heaven is vindicated, and those are all guarantees that are made possible, made real, because of the resurrection. But those aren't the main point of my sermon today. For that, we need to go to the other scripture that I gave you. And so if you haven't already found the book of Acts, I'd like you to turn there. And I want you to look at verse number 29. And this is part of Paul's sermon to the Athenians on Mars Hill. And let me just reference the preceding verses because they tell us about how that Paul had arrived in Athens and While he was waiting there for his traveling companions to join him, that would have been uh, Timothy and also Silas, while he was waiting for them to join him, he took a tour of the city, and as he did, he found that it was a city that was filled with idols. It was a city wholly given to idolatry. In fact, if you visited the city of Athens at that time, you could not walk anywhere without bumping into an idol to some god that they had made. And that stirred up Paul to disgust as he looked at it. And so he began to preach and he went into the streets and he went into the synagogues and he went into the marketplace and he preached the gospel of Christ. And there he met philosophers that were so prevalent in all the public places. Now if you'll glance up there at the end of verse number 18, it says that he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And when Paul began to preach that to the great philosophers of that time, they wanted to take him to the place where they usually argued over such things. They wanted him to to take him to the place where he could meet other philosophers where they would go and they would pass around the latest ideas that were being discussed. Well, Jesus and the resurrection was new to them, and so they took Paul to the Areopagus, that is, to Mars Hill, where they could argue with him about this new doctrine. Now, in verse number 22, he began to speak, and he noticed how religious they were. You see the word superstitious in verse number 22? That actually means religious. And it's not used in a negative connotation like we use it today. All that Paul is saying here is that you fellows, or you guys, you are very devoted to your gods. And then he proceeded to tell them about the one true living God. Not an idol that was made with hands, but the one true living God to which every person must give an answer. Now notice then what he says in verse 29. He said, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art, and man's device. Now there, that is a reference to the idols. They had made all of the idols that Paul and the others could see. They'd made all of those idols with their hands. They'd chiseled them out of stone. They crafted them from molten silver and, and from gold. And Paul's point here is that if we are the offspring of God, if that is true, then how can we be the offspring of something that we've made with our own hands? Then he goes on in verse number 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. 
because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Now, what's Paul's subject? He's preaching a sermon here, and what is this sermon about? Well, the subject is found in the second phrase of verse number 31, God will judge the world. This is his theme. God will judge the world. And how do we know that God will judge the world? He has given assurance unto all men in that he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's my subject for you this morning. The resurrection guarantees that God will judge the world. Oh, yes, the resurrection guarantees that our preaching is valid and it proves that our faith is not vain. It vindicates the hope that we have of, e- of an eternal heaven. But know this also, that it guarantees, the resurrection of Christ guarantees that God will judge the world. Now, Easter is a great time of the year. Thankfully, we look outside, you look through the windows now, and you can see that the sun is shining where it was raining this morning. Birds are singing if you go outside. Uh, Flowers are blooming. Trees are blooming. A beautiful time of the year. And oddly enough, there are are thousands of bunnies that are squirting out Easter eggs somewhere out there. But the resurrection of Christ is not about those things. If you want to know what Easter is all about and what the resurrection of Christ is all about, it is about this subject that God will judge the world. Now, there are two major points to be made in this sermon this morning, and the first is the certainty of judgment. There is a certainty of judgment. Judgment is coming. Now, two weeks ago in the bulletin article, I gave you a preview of this sermon, and one of the things that I pointed out there is that judgment is a repetitive theme throughout the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, there is not a book of the Bible that does not speak of judgment. God is always issuing forth judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, there God judged Adam's sin, and the consequence of his sin was expulsion from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 6, the wickedness of the world was so great, and men did so much evil that God judged the world with a flood. In the book of Exodus, God judged Pharaoh for the oppression of his people. In Joshua, God judged the Canaanites for their human sacrifices. In Jeremiah, in Isaiah, Hosea, and in Amos, God judged Israel for idolatry. In Esther, you'll find that the name of God is not even mentioned in that entire book, and yet you find judgment because God judged wicked Haman for his plan to destroy his people. Now, you keep reading Scripture, and you find judgment, judgment, judgment. Over and over again, as you read Scripture, you find judgment. Read them from cover to cover, and no matter where you go, in any place of the Bible, you will find judgment. Somebody was judged. Always, as you look at Scripture, somebody is being judged. And now we come to this particular text in Acts 17, and it's not somebody that's being judged. It's not somebody else that's being judged. This text tells us, the reality of this text is that you will be judged. The Bible speaks of judgment. The theme of the entire word of God is this, that God will judge the world. And maybe you didn't know that that was the theme of the Bible, 
But that is why Christ came. And if God was not going to judge the world, and if you are not personally going to be judged, then Christ never needed to come into the world. If Christ did not come to judge and God did not say there's going to be a judgment, then there's no need for you to listen to another sermon. You can stop listening right now. You don't need to hear the rest of what I have to say. But because God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and the Word of God says that he will judge the world, you need to pay very close attention to what I have to say. How do we know that judgment is coming? God raised Jesus from the dead. That validates everything that the Word of God says. If that is not true, there is no need for you to listen to the Apostle Paul, and certainly there is no need for you to believe what Jesus said if he did not arise from the dead. Now, here are some things that you need to know about the certainty of judgment. First of all, you need to know that a day has been appointed. He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world. Now that tells us that a day of judgment has been certainly fixed, that judgment is not an afterthought with God. In Acts chapter 15, James said, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now the fact that the Bible speaks of judgment in the end means that God planned judgment in the very beginning because he knows all of his works from the beginning of the world. We don't know when that day will be. There's not a person in the world that knows when this day will be. There's not an angel in heaven that knows when it will be. Jesus said that even in his humanity, he did not know when this day was. He said, the Son of Man, neither the angels nor the Son of Man know the hour or the day when this judgment will be. But the Father knows the day. The eternal Godhead, as it exists in the Trinity, knows the day, the exact day that this will happen. Most of us live as if we don't believe the day of judgment will ever come. We live as if we don't act like there is going to be a judgment. People have heard so many warnings about it, and it hasn't come true. It's been so long, and God has not judged the world. Two years ago, Harold Camping purchased 1,200 billboards all across this world, across the world, heavily saturated in this particular area with those kinds of uh, uh, billboards that said that Judgment Day was coming on May 21st, 2011. But it didn't happen. And so Harold Camping, for all of his energy and his zeal to get the word out that Judgment Day is coming, actually fostered the idea that judgment will never come. All he did when he, when he said this is the day that it will happen and it didn't happen was to put the false belief in people's minds that judgment will not come. But I remind you that the same thing happened before the flood came, that they went on in their wickedness and they were living it up until the time that the rain started and then it was too late for them because God brought judgment. It suddenly happened. And maybe you look at the wickedness of the world and you wonder, why isn't it that God has not already judged the world? Why hasn't Jesus already come back? The world is terribly wicked. Pick up your newspaper, watch the television, see things that are going on. Terrible things happen in the world. And you may wonder, why hasn't God already judged this world? And the reason that he hasn't is because God is patient. God waits because he's gracious 
And what he's done is to give you time to respond to messages like this. He's given us millions of preachers. He's given us billions of pages of written material that explain all about what the Word of God says. And he gave us the Word of God itself that he inspired by his Holy Spirit to tell us that these things are actually true. That God has appointed a day and that day will not change. It is established by God. And you need to know that. And what else do you need to know about the certainty of judgment? You also need to know that a standard has been established. That God has established a standard for this judgment. Now, who will be judged? You will be judged. And the standard that God uses to judge every person by is righteousness. And you might say, well, well God will judge the world. I do believe that. And I, and I do believe that God is going to judge me, but... I'm good enough. I'll be all right at the judgment. How many people have you ever talked to that said, I am going to hell? You ever talked to many many people like that? I am going to hell? Now, there are some people that joke about it, and they don't believe that hell is real, and they don't believe that there is a hell to go to, and so they'll joke about it, and they'll say, oh, sure, I'm going to hell. But you don't find a lot of those people. There are far, far more people that if you ask them, do you believe that you're going to heaven or hell, they will tell you that I believe that I am going to heaven. And you ask them, why do you believe that you're going to heaven? And they'll say, because I'm good enough. I mean, I haven't really done things that are all that bad. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm just good enough to go there. But the problem is the standard by which they think that they will be judged. And do you know what that standard is? Most people in the world have established the standard that they think, and they think the standard is that drunk who is in the gutter all night. Or their standard is that guy that was caught in a sting for child pornography. Or the standard is the wife beater and the drug addicts and all the terrible sinners that are out there in the world. But did you know that even among those types, there are people who believe that they will be in heaven? And do you know why? Because they also think they're good enough. Because what they've done is they picked out somebody that is a little lower than them. And they say, well, at least I'm that good. I'm not as bad as that person. And so I know that I'm just good enough. But the standard is wrong. God will judge the world. Listen, the Bible says in righteousness. And by that he means perfection. What is righteousness? Well, that's whatever that God commands us to do. Righteousness is whatever God is in his perfect holiness. And anything that's short of perfection, use your brain a little bit, anything that is short of perfection is not righteousness, is it? And that's the standard that God says. Jesus said, you must be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. And so do you know what that means? It means that God looks at us and he says, there is a standard by which you will be judged, and the standard is me. God says the standard is me. And unless you are perfect as I am perfect, unless you are righteous in your character as I am righteous, unless you are holy as I am holy, then you will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Now I'd ask you to take a look at your life. And I can end all the speculation about whether you're good enough with two statements that Jesus made. And he made these statements to a man who was top 
notch on the scale of all the do-gooders. He made the statement to a person that prayed beautiful prayers. He made this statement to a man who spent hours scouring the scriptures and learning the commandments and trying to obey them. He said this to a man who fasted twice in the week. Folks, I'm telling you that here was a man that had lent two times every week of the year. And do you know what he said? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When you read that, how good do you feel about your position before God? Are you going to be all right of the judgment? Is every part of you in love with God, demonstrated by perfect obedience to everything that God says? Well, the scripture says there is a day that has been appointed. Judgment is certain to come. And how well are you doing with the standard that's been established? Now, the third thing that you need to know about the certainty of judgment is that a judge has been selected because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Well, who is this man that God has ordained? Paul provided the answer to that back in verse number 18. You remember uh, that uh, we read just or looked at it just a little bit ago. They brought Paul to Mars Hill because they wanted to hear more and they wanted to argue more about the resurrection. Now, Paul was obviously talking about a man because this was the thing that intrigued them so much. A man died, and that man came back from the dead. That's what interested them. And so Paul contrasted that man with their idols. Look at verse number 23. Remember, they came to hear about this man, Jesus, and the resurrection. And now see what Paul says in verse 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, folks, what we're getting there is some trinity from the Apostle Paul. In this passage, he is saying that Jesus is God, that he is one with the God that appointed him as the judge. Now, your brain is not going to wrap itself around that fact and That's a difficult one, and I doubt very seriously if the philosophers got it. But here he's telling us that Jesus Christ is almighty God. And I think that there are people that miss that all-important point. They think of the Father sitting on the throne, and he's angry at people, and he's casting out thunderbolts like Zeus. And what we don't do is we don't really think too much about Jesus as the judge. This meek and lowly lamb, Jesus, we sung about him a few minutes ago, the one that we think wouldn't hurt a fly, the one who said, let the little children come to me. But do you know what he said about judgment? In John chapter 5, he said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Now, do you see that? Paul said, God will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained. Jesus said that he is the judge, he's the son of man. Now let's back up just a moment and think about 
the lowly Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, he endured shame. He was God from heaven that came down to this earth. And the whole time that he was living on the earth, there were people that were constantly accosting him. He reached out in tender love to people. He was compassionate about them. He was compassionate about those who hated him. He wept over the rejection of his own people. In Isaiah, it says that he was led as a lamb. There we see him as a lamb again, led as a lamb before her shears is dumb. Isaiah said he opened not his mouth. There was no protest when they took him to the cross. Peter said that he suffered for us. He said there was no sin in him. He said there was no hypocrisy in him. He suffered without threatening judgment, even though he certainly could have. And so the meek and lowly Jesus was put on a cross, and he was mocked. He was said to be a foolish pretender to kingship. And so they put a purple robe on him, and they wove a a, a crown out of long thorns, and they pressed it down into his head. And they put an inscription, a placard, on the cross where he was crucified, which said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And that was said in mocking ridicule. And so Jesus died there, but then he arose from the grave. Now, what do you think that he will do now? Well, he'll come back and he'll vindicate that authority. He was raised from the dead. And God has given assurance unto all people that judgment is coming. How? Verse number 31 says it. He raised him from the dead. So the reproach of the cross will be taken away. The scorn of it will be repealed. God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. As the word of God says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighted. Mine elect, that means my selected one, my chosen one. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He has been ordained. He has been selected. A day has been appointed. A standard has been established. And a judge has been selected. So what do we do? Well, something needs to be done. God will judge the world. And Jesus, who is the judge, is the foremost authority on what will happen at this judgment. What does that judgment mean? Now, what do you think that the inevitable outcome of this judgment will be? I think most of you know, but if you haven't heard it anywhere else, you will hear it here. The day of judgment is the day when people will be cast into hell. Now, can I read to you what I wrote two weeks ago in the bulletin article? I, I hope that you won't object if I quote me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, the most, I'm the foremost authority on me. And Jesus, as I point out here in this quote, is the foremost authority on the doctrine of hell, Jesus himself. Listen to this quote. If you have any doubts about the reality of eternal hell then you also have doubts about the truthfulness of Jesus. Of the 12 times this final place of torment is spoken of in Scripture using the word Gehenna, Jesus spoke 11 of those instances. In other words, the overwhelming proof of torment in a lake of fire is Jesus. Why is there so much preaching about who Jesus is and what he said and did and yet so little about his major topic? 
All of his teachings about righteousness, regeneration, redemption, salvation, holiness, and entrance into his kingdom are for the purpose of avoiding eternal hell. And the question then is what should we do? What must we do because judgment day is coming? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the Jews about how by their wicked hands they had taken Jesus and crucified him. He was the Holy One. And after he preached about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and after he preached that God had exalted him and placed him at his own right hand, and after he preached that Israel had surely crucified the Lord and Christ, and then after the Holy Spirit had convicted their hearts, these people that heard the message said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were concerned about it. They were frightened about it. They were convicted about it. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, there's no hope for you. Run as fast as you can. Get away right now. In fact, he said, it's better for you to die right now than to commit one more sin for which you will be eternally judged. How many of you read that in Scripture? Oh, some... Somebody read it? Well, it's not there. It's actually not there. Because Peter said none of those things. Peter did not say there is no hope. He said, repent. And that's the second part of the message today, the necessity of repentance. Peter said, repent. And this is what Paul says in verse number 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere must repent. Now, just for your learning, when the Bible says all men, it actually means all people, that there is not one soul that escapes the judgment of God. Now, here Paul says that the times of this ignorance God winked at. Strange expression, maybe a little bit hard for us to understand. He says the times of this ignorance God winked at. Now, that means that God had left them in ignorance that he had overlooked them, that he had passed them by and left them all of these years to, to worship their false gods, to defile themselves with their idols. But now God was being gracious to them because God brought them a witness. And God was gracious to allow them to hear the gospel of Christ. And here was Paul standing before them as the missionary of Jesus Christ, and he was declaring unto them the judgment of God and the grace of God at the same time. Now, the Gentiles would try to excuse themselves, and they would say, well, we can't obey a God that we don't know about. And there are many who say, well, God will judge me, but... uh, It's not going to be a severe judgment because I didn't know all these things. Does that change the fact that you've sinned? His righteous judgment will fall on you unless you have the remedy. And this is the thing that changes it all. This is what renders a favorable judgment in the eyes of God unless you do this, unless you repent. What do you need to do according to the Word of God? It says you must repent. And if all human beings must repent... Don't you think it's important for you to know what that actually means? What does the Bible mean when it says that you must repent? Well, the word actually means, in the original Greek, it means to change your mind. But it means more than just an intellectual swing. It means to turn away from your sins and turn to God. 
And in this sense, genuine repentance means that you turn away from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died to take away all of your sins. And so you must do this. If you will be saved, if you will escape the judgment of God, you must do this. You must agree with your condition. You must agree that you are a sinner, that you have no hope, and that you are no good, that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that you have missed God's mark of perfection. And you realize there is nothing in you that God will accept. And if you think that attending Easter services makes you closer to God, and that's why you're here, you're sadly mistaken. And if you think that repentance is for all of the bad people out there, all of the others out there that didn't go to church today and they're doing all these terrible things, if you think he's talking about the other people, you're sadly mistaken. You've missed the whole point of what Paul is saying. All men, all people everywhere must repent. And so you must agree with this, that you are a sinner without Jesus Christ condemned to the everlasting fires of hell. And this is what will happen to you. You will stand before God at judgment. The Holy Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sin, and you will not escape the judgment unless you repent of your sins and turn with faith to Jesus Christ. Now, you might want to hold on to your seats for just a moment here, because I am not going to tell you that what you must do is to accept Christ. I'm not going to tell you to do that. Because this is not about your approval of Christ. This is about your approval, or his approval rather, of you. And you'd better get serious about your condition, like those that crucified Christ got serious, and they said, what must I do? And I'll tell you what you must do. You must cry out for the mercy and the grace of God. Cry out that he will save you for Christ's sake. Because he will not save you for you. You're not good enough. We've already established that. He will not save you for you. But he will save you for Jesus Christ. You must agree with your helpless, sinful condition. You must agree that you're like that poor, unworthy tax collector in Luke chapter 18 who cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You must get serious about this because God has appointed a day for judgment. He has set a standard, established a standard for judgment. He has selected the judge for judgment. All of it's there. Everything's ready. All the components are there. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will be there too. This is the final judgment that no one without Christ will escape. So what must you do? You must accept God's command. And so if you're determined that you're going to accept something and accept this, you must accept God's command because if you choose to ignore it, you're no better than those that were in Acts chapter 17. You've already determined who your God is. Your God is actually you. You've determined that self is God because that's what they did. They made an idol out of their own hands, made that, set that up as their God. We'll serve what we made with our own hands. And that's what you do if you refuse Jesus Christ. You set yourself up as the idol that you will serve and you are your own God. And what you need to do is to list all of the things that you can do for you. When you're gasping for your last breath, pull out that list of all the things that you can do for you and there it will determine where you're going when you die. How many things can you do for you? The day of judgment is coming. 
We're here for this Easter service because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. That's the reason for an Easter service. If you came here for something else, if you came because it's a nice day, because there are flowers and trees that are blooming, because the birds are singing, because there's going to be an Easter egg hunt somewhere, you came for the wrong reason. Don't miss the meaning of Easter. Christ came to die for sinners because there is a day of judgment that is coming. And he died on the cross so that you would not have to face this judgment and spend eternity in the fires of hell. Now here's the important point about these philosophers that the brilliant intellectuals that brought Paul to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, so they could argue with him, they brought him there to talk about the resurrection from the dead. As soon as Paul got to that point and he began to speak of the resurrection, they shut him off. They shut him down, and they listened to him talk all the way up to that point, and when he got to the reason that he was actually there, the preaching was over. Well, some of you may be thankful for this. At 12.19, according to that clock, the preaching is over. And I don't want you to walk away from here like most of those people left Paul. They mocked him, and they went on their way. As far as I know, there was no church that was ever started at, Ephes, or at Athens. Rather, The Bible never speaks of one. Verse number 34 says that there were some who believed, and for them there is no condemnation, there is no judgment. But I have to ask you, what about you? The text established, didn't it, that God is not talking about somebody else now. All the other books in the Bible, they're talking about judgment and what happened to people then We're not talking about that now. We're talking about this text, and God says there's a judgment coming for you. And the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that Christ died to save you? And I know, looking over the congregation, that most of you claim belief. Are you sure about that? Can you look at your life and see that there is proof that you have believed in Jesus Christ? Are you sure about this? You don't want to get this wrong. Trust me, folks, you do not want to get this wrong. Have you repented of all your sins? And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you? That is the only way that you can escape the wrath of God at judgment. Jesus died for sinners. And what you must do to avoid this judgment is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the solution. And that's what Easter is all about. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thinking about this great text that we've just read. The preaching of it is not so great, but certainly the word of God is unmatched, unparalleled. It is the absolute truth. And no one here, we would hope, would ever try to refute what the word of God says that people must do. And I surely pray that there's no one here who would leave today and say, there is no judgment, or to say, I don't need to worry about judgment because everything is just fine with me. Do they really know that? Have they really trusted you as Savior? This is the most important important subject that we'll ever face in all of our life, that God will judge the world. And how will we stand before God at judgment. 
I pray, Lord, that you would speak to some heart today. We pray your Holy Spirit would move them, that their eyes would be opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would believe. Thank you again for Jesus Christ. We expectantly await his return. We're looking for the day, and I hope that every person in here could say, I'm looking for the day because I will be all right at judgment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.